What's up, everyone? This is the Hillside Ventures podcast. I'm Shivam Patel here with a very special guest, Michael Loeb. And what better way to continue the Loeb series than with Mr. Loeb himself? So today he is the CEO of Loeb NYC, graduating from Amherst with a psychology degree, going to Time Inc., creating and exiting Synapse Group, and creating what we have now today, Loeb NYC. So, Michael, Thank you again for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, you're a very esteemed guest, and it's been a pleasure working at your company this summer. Thank you again for the opportunity. Um, I'll just kick it off to you for a quick intro yourself. Well, intro for myself, but before we talk about me, let's talk about you. How did you enjoy your summer? Absolutely loved it. Loeb itself, the culture, amazing. Small group where we can push each other to another level and grow together. I worked with Cole. Um, that episode will be coming out, or by this time it would already been out. Uh, Cole has been amazing. He's, you know, got to experience a lot of cool things with them inside and out of the office and taught me a lot of cool things about bridging the gap between both technical and non-technical kind of leadership and management. So him coming back from the STEM background, not having coding experience and learning that as a president of a company, I think was amazing. And just kind of hearing you guys speak and listening to your advice and your journeys, I think was very inspiring into something that I think all the other interns would like to continue down that path as well. Well, we put a lot of effort in it. Um, we do try to uh, find, you know, young people who are interested, bona fidely interested in becoming an entrepreneur. Um, I know there's a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas about what that is. Um, it gets romanticized, but the fact of the matter is it's very hard work. Uh, they talk about the venture capital industry talks about the odds of success are two in 10. Two in ten, and um, the true odds might even be lower than two in ten. So you um, have to ask yourself the question: What type of, in per, you know, what type of personality disorder does it take for somebody to take on something that is two in ten, and that you've worked harder than you ever have in your life? Um, and, um, and by the way, it's, you know, not like school. It's not like, you know, there's an end of the semester. There's never an end to the semester. It just, you know, it's 24 seven. I can only tell you that I routinely wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with something on my brain for some of my companies. And, uh, because it just never ends. Entrepreneurs, by the way, tend not to sleep. Okay. Uh, I talk to entrepreneurs, how much sleep do you get? Mm, you know, three, four, five hours a night, right? And sometimes they are, the intellect is so restless that they just can't sleep. It just, it descends on you. It infuses you. Uh, it saturates you. And it becomes an obsession. And uh, for the good ones, it's always an obsession. And so it's... Um, you know, for those of you who are interested in startups and for those of you who want to become an entrepreneur, buyer beware, okay, because it's uh, 
it's tough stuff and it's often thankless. I mean, think about that two in 10, right? You got a 20% 20% chance of like, you know, putting together something that actually works. And uh, why would, why would anybody undertake that? By the way, work for Microsoft. Okay. It's, it's 10 and 10, right? You're going to, you're going to get it. You're going to have a job. You're going to go every day. You're going to be paid. Well, you get stock, you know, Microsoft is 10 and 10 big, interesting company. One of those valuable companies in the world. Why would you, why would you start a company or work for a startup, which by the way, I do recommend that for both, for those who want to start something is work in somebody else's startup, uh, something small, and something early. And the reason for that is that if it's small and early, they have no choice but to throw you into everything. So you get exposed to everything. And um, it is more likely going to be a failure than a success. I think you learn more about character during those period of times. When I say that out loud, I'm thinking about the New York Yankees, right? And in the Billy Martin era, they were winning and the New York Yankees largely had a, you know, quiescent uh, locker room, uh, but it would erupt, Reggie Jackson in particular, it would erupt every once in a while. But, you know, winning teams tend to get along and losing teams tend to fracture. And so you learn a lot about character in a, um, you know, in a losing team. I will tell you about um, something, an anecdote with my father and I. My dad, uh, God bless his soul, um, was a renowned journalist, right? He was, uh, for 40 years, he worked at Time Inc. Uh, He worked at Time Magazine. Then he worked at Money Magazine. And then for his last 10 years of his career, he was the manager of Fortune Magazine. And... um, I had joined Time Inc. That was a company that fired me. There's a whole anecdote there. But um, I worked at Time Inc. And my very first job was working for TV Cable Week, which nobody's ever heard of because front to back, it was in existence for about eight or nine months. And it was a colossal failure. It was the can't miss product that turned into a colossal failure. Now, why was it can't miss? Well, Time Inc. in the day did two things. They had cable assets, second largest cable operator in the United States, and they were by far worldwide the biggest magazine publisher. And so this was a magazine about cable. How could you lose? TV Cable Week. And uh, they lost uh, then the then princely sum of $47 million in eight or nine months. And in the thick of all this, and Time Inc. in its remarkable arrogance uh, announced to the company that um, TV Cable Week could not have more than a 10% allocation of any Time Inker, right? Because, you know, this thing was going to work, so hire 90% of the people on the outside. You can hire 10% of the people from another, another magazine. And um, so that's how I got into Time Inc. I was trying, 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 couldn't get there, made it very clear. You know, I, I, you know I'll, I'll, I'll wash the dishes. I don't care. Hire me. And uh, that didn't work. But TV Cable Week, um, they, were, uh, they had a hire on the outside. So that's how I got um, swept up in all that. And um, 
Time Inc. Uh, being the educational snobs that they are, uh, which is another reason why you shouldn't like them. Uh, they only hired people who are MBAs from Harvard or uh, Columbia or every once in a while Northwestern, right? But that was it. And uh, so you had all these MBAs. I was not an MBA, a public school kid, went to Amherst. And uh, was not an MBA, and everything was a fiefdom. It was very contentious. And so I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I mean, everybody's at everybody's throat. It's just like a shit show here, and um, things are not going well. And I just can't believe the infighting and the politicking and yada, yada, yada. He listened to me for four or five minutes, and then he said, any deaths? I said, deaths? He said, yeah, did anybody murder anybody? And I said, no, hasn't been any murders. And he said, you're a startup, you're ahead. So um, it is fraught, right? Startups are fraught. And the camaraderie that you talked about at Loeb NYC is not necessarily typical. Um, and that is because entrepreneurs and people who work in startups, they tend to be very opinionated. And um, it is very intense and does get fraught and mistakes happen all the time. What I say about that, by the way, is birth is messy. Birth is messy. Now, um, most of you folks are too young for this, but when you, um, uh, when you have a baby and if you see a baby born, okay, there's something called the afterbirth, the afterbirth. The afterbirth is as big as the birth. I mean, it's like this ecosystem, right? To keep that baby alive. It's enormous. And it's this blobby thing, but it's got structure. It's, it really looks like an alien. It's like, you know, there's the baby. And then my wife also had an alien. And um, what that is a demonstration of is that the support system for a startup, and let's face it, a baby is a startup. The support system for a startup uh, is, uh, and that's, you know, the between the walls, the behind the scenes stuff, there's a lot, and there has to be a lot, and there's always going to be waste. I mean, you look at that afterbirth and you say, what, you're just going to throw that out? You know, it's as big as the baby. Yeah, no, we're keeping the baby, you know, but we're throwing out the afterbirth. Um, I think some people are keeping it now for like the stem cells and stuff. But in any event, um, so startups, um, this is a podcast uh, about startups for people who want startups. And I will tell you that um, you should know what you're getting into. It is, uh, it is difficult. It is fraught. Um, you know, I say to young people, I know what you think. You think that on Monday you have an idea on Tuesday, you raise capital. On Wednesday, you're in the marketplace. On Thursday, you're talking exit. On Friday, you get the big check. On Saturday, you're like on some beach in Turks and Caicos for like the rest of your life. Doesn't work that way, okay? Does not happen that way. So get that out of your mind, okay? Think of about the hardest struggle ever. But I will also tell you something, and that is it's a disease. Because once you've had one, and once it's been successful, there is no greater exhilaration than that. Now, that's the positive. The negative is it lasts five minutes, okay? And the failures, 
the failures you never get rid of ever, right? They're nightmares. They loom over you and you all, you end each episode in your own head with what was I thinking? Right? So, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's masochistic. So read up on masochism. Okay. Uh, because it really is a self-inflicted wound. And, and by the way, I have no excuse because for the last 20 years, I could have grown tomatoes. But, you know, no, I'm putting myself back in the game and getting bloodied all the time. And um, I really don't think too much about why am I doing this. I mean, I'm doing this because of the thrill, okay, of the thrill. Actually, want to know why I'm doing it? Do you want to know why I'm doing it? Okay, fine. All right. So um, I don't know if this directly answers the question, but there was a poet, and I think it was Walt Whitman. Uh, you guys can check. And he had an expression, right? He had a saying, a quote, and that quote was, our names are writ on water, right? Names writ on water. So think about that. Think about your finger kind of coursing through water. As soon as it goes, it's gone, right? Except Walt Whitman has a big fuck you. And you know what it is? It's on his tombstone. Like, you're on water, dude. I'm in granite, okay? There I am. So the satisfaction of being an entrepreneur and building something is to have that monument, right, to your brain. And that monument is the business that you built, the enduring business that you built. And the ones I seek to build to do two things. One, uh, well, maybe more than two. One, it's a real advance, right? It's a real advance. Highest praise, okay, that I can get when I start something is someone who I prize their brain, right, uh, who says... I wished I thought of that. Wow, that's high praise. It's like, no, nah, you didn't. I did, you know, and here's the company to prove it. Um, so that's high praise. The other is uh, building something enduring that helps people, right? Um, I love doing well by doing good. Um, I don't want to do anything in cannabis because I think the book is out in cannabis. I don't want to do anything on gambling because that's a tax on the poor. Um, I want to do things that help people and I've got choices, right? So my brain shifts to those businesses that do just that. And then I also want to help the stakeholders. Now, who are the stakeholders? Well, those are the employees. And I was very happy that Synapse, my very first one, uh, 26 people became overnight millionaires, right? When Synapse traded to Time Inc., the company that fired me. So that was kind of cool. With all this extensive experience, what pushed you into entrepreneurship? And in your words, what kind of gave you this disease in a sense where you have to keep going and keep innovating? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, you know, this is a congenital disease, right? You're born with it, right? Entrepreneurs, right, are born, not made. Okay. When I'm in an interview and somebody says, I want to be an entrepreneur. I say, tell me about the lemonade stand that you had when you were seven. And if you say, I never had a lemonade stand. 
And then I'll say, well, tell me about your paper route. And they say, I never had a paper route. I'll say, well, tell me about your lawn care business. I never had that either. And so if you never had any of those things, I say, you know, dude, you are not an entrepreneur. So it starts, it presents young, right? And um, there's something, it really is an entrepreneur's gene and it's got two attributes. Number one, it's the whole idea of money and making money. And they talk about the relationship of successful people and money. And the relationship is money is kind of a means to an ends, right? It's not about the thing. It's not about the money. It's about the journey, right? And it's not, it's, it's, symbolic more than it is in fact. And by that, I mean, it is a demonstration of, a dimension of, a article of, proof of success, right? Proof of impact, money. The other thing about an entrepreneur is that an entrepreneur believes that laws, including the laws of physics, do not apply to them, okay? So an entrepreneur sees the stop sign, right? And says, I'm gonna gun it, you know why? All the other sons of bitches are stopping, this is my opportunity, okay? Entrepreneurs thinks about that week between Christmas and New Year's and they say, well, you know what? Everybody's taking off, not me, okay? That's when I'm gonna pounce, right? When everybody else is asleep. So um, entrepreneurs be don't believe they ever lose, okay? I will give you um, a quote you guys will keep with you in your brains and trot out every once in a while. And that is something from Edison who said, I never failed. I just figured out 10,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. And that has to be the coda. That has to be the philosophy. That has got to be the thinking as it relates to being an entrepreneur. It's not about failure. It's about learning experience. Some of us require more than others, but it's not failure. You were asking me uh, a multi-piece uh, question, and one of them was, how did I get into being an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Kind of like the environment you grew up would be, I think, good based on what you kind of talked about, based on it being you're born this way instead of being molded, per se. Yeah. Born this way. That should be an album. Oh, it already is. Okay, fine. Anyway, but um, yeah, well, you know, my dad, again, my dad worked at Time Inc. as a journalist. He was a very high level journalist. And um, he had interviewed every president. He had interviewed heads of state. Um, he had changed the arc of history multiple times. Uh, but um, what my dad would do is he would bring that home to him with him at the dinner table. And that's what we talk about. We talk about big things. We talked about countries, continents, politics, right? We talked about trends. 
and it was very expansive. And by the way, that's one thing about an entrepreneur. They have an expanded brain, right? In part because they don't think anything is outside of the possible. Remember, physics do not apply, okay? So when you are unbridled that way, you can think big thoughts. So um, I always had that gene. I didn't know I had that gene because I followed my dad into Time, Inc. I went on the business side, not the um, journalism side. But um, so I was in denial because that's all we heard about, right, was, you know, Time, Inc., Time Magazines. You know, I was, I was, um, I was the, you know, the only six-year-old who knew what a sans serif font was. You know, I could, I could say, oh, no, that's Courier 12. Look at that. Anyway, so that, you know, came home all the time. And that became, you know, kind of the ambition. And so, um, you know, and, and that's really what got me fired at Time Inc. is that I was a much better entrepreneur than I was a corporate citizen because the requirements and the, you know, coda uh, and the handbook of behavior is quite, you know, different. And uh, in a corporate environment, the take no prisoners approach to getting things done is often greeted with derision. So, yes, so um, it was only a matter of time, but eventually I got fired. And then uh, that unleashed gave me the opportunity to start my first company, Synapse, which I did with a partner. And that partner was Jay Walker. And that led to Priceline.com. And um, after those two, um, it was Loeb NYC, which is this, some people call it an incubator, some people call it, um, call us a VC from time to time. I, um, I think we combine elements of both. And um, what I do say about us is that we're ideas to execution exits. I call the company a Tootsie Pop with the chocolatey center, all the companies and the hard candy shell. Uh, what we call shared services, which is that Swiss army knife of know-how that every company needs to scale in addition to capital. So that's, uh, that's kind of our model. I am told that it is um, at very least differentiated, could very well be unique, which is kind of, um, kind of, kind of flattery, right? That's um, yeah. entrepreneurs love to hear in unique differentiation is key at the end of the day. I mean, with your journey being so successful in everything that you've been able to accomplish through consistency, through the learning experiences, not the failures, what did it take to become the best? Like what sacrifices did you have to make throughout your journey in order to get to where you are now that many people, you know, might think is crazy and, and unconventional in a way? Um, well, let's see. I think I can make fun. I can say, you know, I used to be at Chippendales to make extra money. I'm not going to tell you that, but, um, but no, the, um, you know, what it really comes down to is putting in the hours, you know, putting in the hours. And it also, um, means, you know, putting in everything you had. There was one point where, you know, I was funding Synapse and um, it just about took every last penny. 
So entrepreneurs will do that. They'll take, you know, out of their, their conviction, they'll take everything and put it on, on the line. It is, by the way, you know, it is not healthy. <laughs> I gained, um, in the synapse years, in the intensity of the synapse years, I, I used to wrestle in college and, um, I wrestled 134 and I was tipping the scales at 205, right? At one time at synapse, I looked at myself and I said, this, this just is not going to work. So I, um, I've took off about 45 pounds and I'm now down to like 160, which is not a bad weight. Because uh, while I wrestled 134, if anybody knows about rest wrestling, it's really yo-yo weight. And so I would off-season get up to 155. So I'm within spinning distance of my off-season weight. But, yeah, so, um, you know, you, uh, you just, everything becomes sacrificable. That means, you know, um, many marriages have been torn asunder. Uh, that means, you know, missing your kid's birthday. Uh, that means uh, putting every last penny you have on the line. And entrepreneurs do that, make all that sacrifice and the hours, you know, seven days a week, 24 uh, seven, without um, complaint, right? Without hesitation. It definitely puts perspective on what types of things you gotta go through. I guess now, in terms of like, what are some non-negotiables in your daily routine to make the day successful instead of having to, you know, sacrifice a lot more of what you had to earlier on in your journey? Well, you know, there are no non-negotiables, but there are some things that um, in my routine that I try not to sacrifice. How about that? Right? Yeah. Then I made something a priority. And one thing I discovered was tennis, right? So, you know, here I was this wrestling guy and um, I'd look at the tennis player with their little white shorts and, you know, their little white shirts and, you know, they're all natally dressed and, you know, they're swinging the rackets. Good shot, Smithy, you know, and I'm saying, well, that's, you know, not what wrestlers do, right? Yeah. And uh, then, uh, 20 years ago, I bought my house in the Hamptons and it had a beautiful tennis court and um, took me a while. But I said, you know, maybe I should try this thing. And I got hooked and I try to play every day for about two hours. Uh, I don't play games as in I don't count and I don't play with humans. I just play with pros. Right. Because, you know, the fastest way for me um, to destroy a friendship is put me in a competitive situation because, you know, uh, you know, no, let's not do that. OK, I want to be your friend. And because um, I could either compete or I can pretend, but I, you know, there's just not a middle ground. Someone said of me now that I'm thinking about it, uh, a good friend of mine is Josh Harris. And Josh is, um, this is how, it's guys like that that'll keep me humble all the time. Uh, Josh is 10 years my junior. Josh was adopted. Josh 
helped build Apollo, one of the three founders, and Josh is worth an extraordinary amount of money. And Josh is has the distinction of owning a professional soccer team in England, a hockey team in the United States, right, the Devils. He owns the 76ers in basketball, and most recently he bought the Commanders, right, bought the Commanders. So um, that's one thing that's going to keep me humble when you see a guy like Josh Harris. Another guy that keeps me humble is uh, Michael Rubin of Fanatics. Uh, these guys are uh, incredibly, ridiculously, absurdly successful. Um, and, um, you know, I have the privilege from time to time of hanging with them. Uh, but um, Josh, when he bought the 76ers, one of you know, one of the folks in that group that bought it um, said of me, and I did not buy in on the 76ers, uh, but they said of me that this would never, ever work for Michael, right? Because Josh Harris made it very, very, very clear that if you buy in to the 76ers, you're going to be a passive, right? That I, Josh, I'm going to be the only active owner, and yes, I'm going to show up at the drafts, and I'm going to influence that, and I'm going to help pick the coach, but none of you, right, will have anything to do with that. And it was said of me that, you know, Michael could never do that. Michael could never do that. And it's only if you don't know me very well would you say that. I've got two speeds, and the two speeds is either I run it, right, you know, either I drive or I'm in the back seat reading my newspaper, right? But there's no, there's just no in between, right? There's no switching off in the middle. I'm not going to do that. So, um, no, I, I would be perfectly uh, content with having Josh Harris drive and me being a spectator. And what I would say is, you know, Josh is like really, really, really smart. And he does an extraordinary job of research. And um, I am... And, and he is more engaged and committed than I would ever be because he has a hell of a lot more cash into it. So, no, I'm, um, I'm totally content to um, hand him my, um, my money and my proxy at the same time. But, uh, yeah, so either, either I do it or I don't. So in tennis, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend. Uh, if you come on the court with me, I'm either going to do patty cake, right, and, uh, you know, do rainbows over the net or I'm going to destroy you. So, you know, and there goes our friendship. So there's no there's no middle. And um, these guys, you know, are the type of guys who used to be on the on the tour. And it's it's take no prisoners. It's just banging the crap out of the ball back and forth and back and forth. And, um, you know, no points, no counting. I, I don't need that scorecard to know that I'm getting better, you know, and um, the thing about keeping score, keeping score warps, right, your game. And then it ceases to become trying to get better. It's trying to win points. And my, uh, my goal is just to get better. That was great. I mean, let's just say, let's, let's get a crazy hypothetical out here. Let's say no one knows who Michael Loeb is. You're back to being, let's say, 25 years old. What are you doing? Yeah, okay. So uh, you asked about regrets. Uh, a regret was I started at 36. 
right? So I was fired when I was 36, and that's a regret. And um, I will say to your audience that I do have a talk about entrepreneurship. Don't get any ideas. I do have a talk on entrepreneurship. And um, when I'm asked to talk at a college about entrepreneurship, I'm invited by the Entrepreneurs Club or something akin to that. And um, so um, knowing your audience, Abe Lincoln said, never know, never ask a question you don't know the answer to first, right? So I know my audience. And I say, who here wants to be an entrepreneur? Show your hands. All the hands go up. And then I say, who here is planning on quitting school? No hands go up. And then I say, you're all doing the wrong thing. And I got a slideshow. Bill Gates quit Harvard sophomore year. Zuckerberg quit Harvard sophomore year. Um, Michael Dell quit UT sophomore year. I go on and on and on. They all quit in their sophomore year. And why is that? Well, Warren Buffett said, if the path to riches could be found in books, every librarian would be a millionaire. Okay. And the truth is what happens in school is backward looking and entrepreneurs create the future. So after a couple of years of saying, you know what, it's great to know history and there is a saying and it's mostly true, which is those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. But what you have to do is not practice history verbatim, okay? What you have to do, and by the way, this is a good, this is, a, this is the way everybody should seek advice. Know that advice is advice. Advice has a perspective and an orientation. Um, and you should not be obedient to any single, you should gather a lot of advice, and it sometimes gets confusing. Like get 10 opinions, right? You would say, shit, that's going to drive me nuts. But really what you got to do is you got to, you just got to listen and you got to absorb it. You got to let it sink in and, and run over you. And then you kind of suss through all that and you find your own way. And sometimes you take two pieces of that and six pieces of that and three pieces of that and you make an amalgam and it's your own, by the way, another good one. It was said, um, it was attributed to Picasso, a good artist copy, great artist steal. You know the difference? Copying is copying. That's an exact replica, okay? Stealing is what I just described, right? Stealing is taking bits and pieces of a lot of things and putting it all together. That's stealing because it makes it your own, right? It's the concept of ownership, proprietorship, okay? Yes, so my little speech... Um, you know, budding entrepreneurs and what uh, Buffett had to say about librarians. And the fact is that history can ground you into a form of thinking, but in the end, there's got to be some originality on top of that. Because if there isn't, there is no advancement. I'm going to give you guys another quote, and this is from uh, Sir Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton has been declared the genius of all geniuses. He had like an IQ of 700, 
I mean, it's crazy, right? So all the geniuses, when they say Einstein, hey man, you're smart. And he said, no, nah, you know, you should, you should see Newton. Newton, he's, he's the man. That guy is smart. If I see further, I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And that's what invention is. Invention is, you know, it's, it's like um, sedimentary rock, right? It's just layers on top of layers. And your advance, your contribution was enabled by the guy who invented fire in the wheel, right? Because it all started there. And uh, after that, it's all been layers on top of that. By the way, I don't think it was the same guy. I think, you know, I think Sammy made the wheel and Jaime did fire, right? It scared him at first, but it, it worked out in the end. Definitely. I mean, it's it's amazing the way that you can think about these different things and, and think back to a time where you just kind of have to keep grinding at it and your perspective on students, you know, dropping out of school and that talk I think is important to recognize. I guess looking at like an Amherst article, I, I saw that it was important that you under, you want students to understand how to think, kind of learning that process. I um, just wanted to see if you had a brief kind of way that you can kind of go about doing that. Yeah, I, you know, on the how to think things, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of reading, right? So I encourage people to, I do encourage people to read. Um, I would say um, I do get $10 for every subscription sold. No, I don't actually. But The Economist, if you um, were not going to read it, anything but that, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to read. You know, and as long as I'm thinking about that, I, I um, might as well share this. And this is really a cul-de-sac, and I apologize. But I am worried about your generation, right? And I'm not worried about your generation. I'm worried about the world, right, in your generation. And there are some looming and scary issues, some of which have been surfaced, some of which have been less so um, put into the forefront. Uh, we all know about climate and, um, you know, for the deniers, I think that's real um, collateral to that. They talk about this being the sixth uh, extinction event. I don't know about you, but I kind of like Bambi, went around a bit, you know. I guess Bambi was a guy. Oh, well. A big risk is what is going on now in the world. We have two wars. Right? Nobody would have thought we'd have another war in Europe. And then what is going on in the Middle East is likewise very scary. Um, and there's no good solution. Then um, my fear is that China is going to march on Taiwan. It's just a matter of time. And um, they have signaled that for quite some time. They've been arming up to do just that. They've been... You know, they've been building more nukes faster than any country in the history of the world. Um, they're creating those types of weapons that, you know, anticipate a fleet of our aircraft carriers uh, going into the Pacific and how they can destroy them. Uh, so they are um, they're committed to taking over Taiwan. I And I wouldn't be totally shocked. I don't think... I wouldn't be totally shocked. Nobody is looking right now. 
nobody's looking because we are all looking at the Ukraine and we're all looking at the Middle East and um, bad actors will take that opportunity and um, do something. So think about this. I mean, you know, will the United States want to engage in yet something else? And this would be the biggest something else of all the something else's. And so it's, um, that's kind of scary. So what do I worry about with your generation? I worry about, I worry about the environment. I worry about conflict. I worry about um, a couple other things. You don't hear too much about the deficit. Oh my God, the deficit. It's just crazy. And it's bizarre, but, you know, we used to worry about it a lot, but we're not worried about it. We have taken leave of our senses. The debt that our government has, if you do the division, it's like $300,000 per person in the United States. It's just, it's unbelievably fantastically large. Actually, now they think about it, it's more because it's about $30 billion and we got about, you know, so it's about $900,000 for every, every citizen, everybody in the United States. 900,000 bucks. That's the debt. That's what you owe, right, to the government. Good luck to you. So I worry about that, but I then worry about some things you don't hear about too much. Uh, but let me start with a question, which is if I asked you today, China says they've got 1.4 billion people, right? Today in China, 1.4 billion is what the government says is in China. What do you think that number is going to be in 2100? 650 million. They're going to lose half their people. And uh, the birth rate in China has ebbed so low. You, you heard the expression, shoot the messenger, right? Okay. In China, when the message sucks, they muzzle the messenger. So... Um, birth rate in China. Now you need 2.1, okay, births per woman to sustain your population. 2.1 over a lifetime. When you think about it, it makes sense. Except in China, it's 2.2. Want to know why? All right. For they had the one-child policy for about 30 years, and during that 30 years, they drowned their girls because everybody wanted a boy. So it has the most dis disproportion male to female ratio of any country in the world. Okay. So it's 2.2. They were at when it was last published 1.09, half the birth rate required to maintain population. Okay. So, you know, between now, when you think about it now and 2100 is 77 years, that's roughly the equal of, you know, that roughly equals a lifespan. So if you're going down by half, Okay, that number is going to go down to 700. I said 650. You know why? Because the government lies about the population. It's really 1.3 billion, not 1.4. So uh, that, by the way, makes, and, by, and when you get to 2100 in China and there's 650,000, so think about this half of all the cities in China will like disappear, right? I mean, Think about that. I mean, you know, if you have a city used to have 20 million people, now it's got 10. I mean, like half the house is empty. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine what happened. But it guarantees, by the way, disinflation. And it almost guarantees poverty. And let me tell you why. Because if you look around, if you look around the world, the developed world and the semi-developed world, 
housing, right? Owning your own home is the path to security, right? Most of the people, you know, the most, your bank, right, is in your equity in your house. So if you have half the humans, right, supply, demand, guess what's happening to housing prices? They go to zero. Not exactly zero, but they go lower, a lot lower. So there's no wealth creation, right? And so you have no wealth creation just at the same time that everybody's getting old. Well, okay. You know, then I become a burden in society because I can't afford anything. And so China, 2100, it's 650 million people, but they're all, they're all 80. I mean, it's, it's just, it's extinguishing itself. By the way, it's not just China, Japan. I mean, if you look at all the Far East, right? Same problem, all of Europe, the same problem. And it's, um, it is a contagion around the world for every developed country except for one. You want to know which one? The United States, right? And it's not that we're profligate. It's that we do something that very few countries do. And we do it well. We import and assimilate people, right? Now, for anybody who's anti-immigration, that's something that they should know because the wealth of this country, the security of this country, the well-being of this country requires immigrants to make up for our birth rate deficit. So I am getting back to the top because, you know, you guys all look too happy, so I want to make you really depressed. Okay, so what I'm worried about, I'm worried about, I'm worried about uh, the environment in no particular order. Uh, environment and collateral at, you know, the sixth extinction event. I am worried about, um, you know, the state of, you know, the state of aggression and wars in the world. And um, I just think that at some point, China will take over Taiwan. And part of the reason is what I just gave you, which is you're not going to do it when everybody's 80, you know, you got to do it. You got to do it when, you know, they're on the clock. They literally are on the clock. Their population is going backwards. The last census in China was held up for about three months because they had to get the fudging of the numbers right, right? Because they couldn't admit that their population was going backwards. So uh, worry about, you know, again, environment and the extinction, you know, event. I worry about the wars that are raging in the world and they could easily rage out of control. I mean, you know, Iran is a nuclear power close. I mean, that's kind of scary. And they are, you know, the proxy for Hamas. I mean, it's all just scary, um, you know, and will China opportunistically use this moment to march on Taiwan? Scary possibility. Uh, I worry about the national debt, not something you guys talk about or hear about too much. And then I worry about the aging of the worldwide population. There is um, also, by the way, you know, it's funny because 50, 60 years ago, we never heard about IVF. You know what that is? In virtue fertilization, right? And now, right, now just about, you know, just about everything is IVF, Right. And um, that is because, and this is something that is also not written about too much, the fertility of men around the world has been plunging, plunging. Nobody knows why. 
um, there's theories, um, you know, there's been, you know, bees, right? There's been, uh, ex, you know, bee extinctions now for a long time. Their beekeepers are having trouble. You got to look at, you know, look it up. But um, they are also talking about bug counts, right? They talked about the windshield test. And think about that when you were a kid, you know, when you went on a trip with your family, did the windshield get like, you know, splattered with bugs and now not so much anymore. So, um, so anyway, a lot to worry about. Um, and the burden is going to be on your guys' shoulders. And um, it just, what's dreadful about all this is that it's so easy for politicians to kick the can down the road. Right. And that's what they're doing. I mean, you know, it's, if you've got the ticking time bomb, all you have to do is make sure that, you know, you don't get the wrong tick on your watch, right? Just, you know, make sure we got, make sure we got 10 minutes left and I'm in the office. I'm in office for another minute. That's what the game is. You can't be a builder. You can't be a creator without having an awareness of the world, right? Because you're responding uh, to the needs of the world. So um, a fulsome discussion about world events is, um, you know, not a bad idea. And I, and I really meant, I didn't give you enough to do anything but be provocative so that you would have enough to reflect. Uh, you and your audience would have enough to, you know, dig into some of these things and think about them. Of course, I think it's very important for our generation to think about these issues as they're going on right now. They may go on in the near future. We, we really never know. And we got to be prepared for these types of things. Uh, I guess just like with my question, I, I was just trying to gauge like if you were in our positions now, a little bit older past like this college age, like what types of things would you do to kind of not get to the position where you are now, but try to establish that legacy that you're yearning for? Yeah. Okay. So. I would, if, you, if you're serious about being an entrepreneur, I mean, first of all, I'll back up and say, this really is a great country, right? And it's, um, we have the rule of law here. Uh, we have, for the most part, you know, protected borders here. We have, um, you know, we do have, um, freedoms. We can worship to any God that we want. And that's not typical. It's rare and it's special. And the other thing we do in this country, a great job of introspection, right? In other words, we, we, we question ourselves. We're trying to improve. We disagree. I think it's a little bit too fraught these days. Um, I'm very disappointed with the media and what it's become. And basically everybody's reactive to like, you know, Twitter at Al because I guess X, because they get stuff out right away. And a good example is what happened this week, which was the New York times, wall street journal, 48 point type, you know, Israel bombs a hospital, 600 people die. And then the next day it was, uh, no, that's not what happened. It was a Hamas, rocket and it hit not a hospital, but a parking lot. So, um, that is just such irresponsibility. And I know what the press is saying, which is, Oh no, no, you know, we just relied on, you know, reports from other people. Well, that's not good enough, right? You're, 
you are the New York Times, you are the Wall Street Journal. Your job before you publish something like that is to investigate it. And you better be like, not just a little bit sure, you gotta be sure. I mean, this was 48 point type, two huge lines, top of the New York Times. How could that be? Anyway, um, so for your generation, if you really wanna become an entrepreneur, uh, you know, first of all, great country, getting back to that. Um, this really is a country of possibilities. I'll give you one example that has stuck with me, but maybe 10 years ago, you know, 10 years ago, I'm um, rushing to uh, JFK and um, I'm in a cab with a thickly accented guy. And I, um, as I'm paying him, we didn't have chit chat, but as I'm paying him, I did ask him, and it's often a question I ask, where are you from? And based on the accent, you would have guessed either India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, turned out he was from Bangladesh. And I said, how long have you been in this country? Now that, you know, sometimes that might seem like an imposition, but generally people answer that question. And the answer was 20 years, which, you know, could be a surprise in as much as there was a very thick accent, right? And I said, any kids? He goes, two boys. I said, how old? 14 and 16. And they went to, and I said, where do they go to school? Stuyvesant. Now, Stuyvesant is a specialty high school in New York. And you take one test. It's like six hours. And if you're below the line, you don't get in. If you're on top of the line, you do get in. But if you go to Stuyvesant, you are guaranteed to go to Princeton. And if you can't go to Princeton, you're guaranteed to go to Harvard. And if it's not that, it's MIT, right? And you are guaranteed to go at zero cost to you. So here's this guy, right, coming over from Bangladesh um, 20 years ago, working like the Dickens, I am sure, puts together a home, to put his boys through Stuyvesant. And by the way, to get to Stuyvesant, you have got to study your butt off for years and years and years to finally get to Stuyvesant. And then in one generation, that mobility in one generation is truly extraordinary because those boys can do whatever they want to do. So advice, counseling, thoughts. If you want to become an entrepreneur, um, I would seek out an entrepreneurial environment, seek out a startup. That's not hard. By the way, they're not very discriminating. They'll hire anybody. I wouldn't even worry about that. Okay. But try to pick out a good one. What's the definition of a good one? Try to find one in an area field that you're interested in. Try to find, learn about the founder. Okay. Learn about the backers to the founder and be early right? You want to be employee number four. And what you'd like about the founder is you'd like to see that that founder has had, you know, one or two successes underneath their belt because the first one's always chaos. Okay. And then, and I wouldn't do this unless you want to be an entrepreneur and I wouldn't want to be an entrepreneur unless my head was exploding with ideas, right? Um, ideas for businesses, ideas for commerce, right? Not ideas for paper mache, right? I mean, like ideas. And then 
after you have one under your belt, work two years at that startup and um, doesn't have to be a success. You actually learn more, as I mentioned, from failures, but make friends with that starter upper. So you got to pick very, very carefully, right? Who you're going to hit your wagon to. Uh, and, uh, I would research, I'd find out what they did before and also try to, you know, before I started working there, try to go, you know, go book on that person. And I'd want to find out about their character. I'd want to find out, are they good guys, right? There's a lot of people that are not particularly good guys, um, but good guys. And then, um, I'd sponge up as much as I can and then... When I had an idea, I'd go to that guy and I would say, what do you think of that? And if they say, boy, I think that's pretty good. Then you say, well, you know, I think I'm going to leave and I'm going to need capital and I'm going to need, um, you know, talent. And I, I want to put you on my board of advisors. And that's how you get started. But don't do it. Don't do it unless you have a real appreciation of the odds. Don't do it unless you have a real appreciation of how hard it is. Uh, and don't do it if you aren't a born entrepreneur. And don't do it if your head is not exploding with ideas. Okay? But what's cool about this country, um, I did some analytics that are now about three years old, uh, but I took a look at those companies around the world that were 25 years old or younger that were worth over $100 billion, right? So less than 25 years old, worth over $100 billion. There were 19, 19 such companies. Uh, again, that was about three years ago. Now, of the 19, eight were Chinese. I'm here to tell you that doesn't count. And it doesn't count because the Chinese government has its thumb on the scale. And an example of that is that worldwide Uber, right, is, you know, the drive service of choice, except in China, it's Didi. And Uber was in China and they pretty much forced them out of business and forced them into a merger with Didi. So now Didi is owned 20% by Uber, but they had to capitulate, right? Uh, same with Amazon, right? Uh, that uh, Amazon is pervasive, except that in China it's Alibaba. And so it goes, right? Thumb on the scale. So 19 take away eight, that's 11. Right, 11 companies, $100 billion or more, 25 years young or less, right? 11, around the world. One is European, right? One is, and that's Spotify. One is Canadian, that's Shopify. The rest, nine out of 11, American, American. We have an ecosystem of ideas and enablement and capital. And we also have, I don't know what to call it, a pioneering spirit, but we are the guys, right? That, you know, with an ax and a wagon, you know, would cut our way through a forest 
and um, build a homestead and a farm, right? So culturally, you know, we do that. Culturally, we do that. Now, we talked about immigration. I would have an immigration policy. If you have an IQ of 135 or more, come to this country for free, become a citizen immediately. That would be my policy, right? I just want geniuses. I want to suck the world out of geniuses, okay? Um, I talk about, and then I think we got we to gotta close this. And this, this is a weird one. This is, you know, people are going to be throwing tomatoes at me for this one. But um, it's very interesting. And, and I do this, by the way, you know, as kind of an observer, right? As kind of an observer. And I am, um, full disclosure, half Jewish, half Catholic, right? I'm kind of Jewish from the temples up, temples below, all Catholic. This is why I can do sports, stuff like that. But it's interesting, uh, but if you look at hedge funds, the top 25 money-making, the top 25 money, money makers in, in hedge fundum, right? Top 25 people, um, about 19 are Jewish. Now, Jews represent two-tenths of 1% of the population of the world, right? Two out of 1,000 population of the world. And um, it's and about 2% of America, right? But they're about 80% of the richest, most successful hedge fund guys. And that's because, you know, frankly, and I saw it in my household, you know, there's something about business models and the conversations about that and how it all fits together. And that's kind of the dinner conversation. But the other thing is the church, right, uh, for all through the Middle Ages, which is, you know, from 500 to 1500, a thousand years, millennia, said um, you can't, you can, you can lend money, but you can't have interest. So who would do that, right? So I'm going to lend you a hundred bucks and I hope you pay it back 10 years from now and get a hundred bucks back, right? I mean, who would do that? So you couldn't do that if you were a Catholic. Ah, enter the Jews, right? They're allowed to lend money and get interest. So that became, right, that became the dominion of the Jewish people. They could be bankers and, you know, you had to be facile with math and, you know, that became a thing, right? And a lot of places you couldn't own land, but you could do that. You could, and at one time managing money was just, you know, that was like a sin. So, you know, let the Jew do it. Uh, but the other thing about the Catholic religion, and this is going to get me, this is this is what's going to get me besmirched, right? Um, and if they come after me, you got to protect me. That's the that's the deal. You, you're you're that you're good. Okay, good. All right, you signed up for that. Okay, so you know, and this was not always the case, but you know, at around I don't know the exact year, but something like five hundred, it was decided the church decided that priests and nuns had to be celibate had to be celibate, right? So for a thousand years and to today, 1500 years, still celibate, okay? So you're in Europe and if you happened to be able to read, right? And not only one language, but two, because one of them had to be Latin. If you knew how to read, okay? And you knew how to write and you wanted to dedicate your life to reading and writing, right? You became a priest or a nun. Okay. And then, right, there was a prohibition to be a priest and a nun, which was you could not procreate. 
you could not procreate, right? So think about this. For 1,000 years, right, 1,000 years, generation after generation, the best and the brightest were put into a genetic cul-de-sac, right? That's kind of like I'm a farmer and I'm taking my two biggest stalks of corn. I'm taking all the corn over six feet, right? You know, and that's 10% of my corn, and I take all the stalks away. You are not allowed to have seeds, right? I'm taking my biggest chickens, my biggest pigs, right? Fastest growers, you know, best tasting meat, and I'm taking them out of production. So it's, um, it's kind of a very interesting cultural observation. At least it's interesting for me. All right, audience. Lastly, if you have any questions or ideas about the podcast, please feel free to reach out. Uh, you can stay updated with us through this podcast, our Substack newsletter, our social media um, at Hillside Ventures. And with that, we appreciate your time in listening to the Hillside Ventures podcast. This was Shivan Patel here with Michael Loeb, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.